Open your Bible with me to John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 223 through 315. That's John 2, starting in verse 23, and we're going to go to chapter 3 and verse 15. Here's what Scripture says. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a womb the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, You do not understand these things? You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? No one, who, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord Jesus, this morning, this very morning, would you show us the way, not just to a new start, but a way to a new heart, to the new birth, the new life that you offer us. Maybe this morning for the first time, we ask that you would do this in the heart of some among us, Encourage us by your word and remind us what we have in you. We pray in your mighty name. Amen. Thai Temple offers a head start on rebirth. That was the title of a New York Times article back in 2016 by a guy named Seth Midians. He's talking about a Buddhist temple in Thailand that has found a really popular ritual. You pay about $5 in order to speed up your rebirth. Essentially, they have a bunch of monks and some empty coffins, and anyone who feels the need can 
hop in one of those coffins and be covered up with a sheet, have some rituals done around them, and pop back up, say some prayers, and be off into your new life. It seems like an odd sort of thing on the surface of it. Maybe you think, why would anyone want to do that? But consider, for example, that even modern psychology has dabbled in the idea of having people experience new births. They call it rebirthing. Think how many people talk about the need to have a new start to life. People switch careers. They, they move all the way across the country. They change their friend groups, change their habits. All because deep down, there's this unease, this sense that something's not right with us. How do we start again? How do we get a do-over? How do we press the reset button on life so things can line up the way they're supposed to be? Well, this morning, the passage before us shows us that the longing of our heart is right, but it's only partly right. Because what we need is, is not just to go back and start again, not just a new start. Jesus is going to show us what we need is actually a new heart or a new birth, something that only God can give us. The bestowal of a, a life so profound, so deep within each of us, that only the work of his Holy Spirit can cause it to happen. That's what Jesus is going to hold out before us, what we Christians sometimes call becoming born again, the new birth. The passage is broken up into three sections. The first section is 2.23 through 3.3. 3. It's the new birth, why it is that we all need it. Then in th chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, it'll be the new birth, what it actually is. We'll define what the new birth is as Jesus explains it to us. And, and then finally, in verses 9 through 15, we'll see the new birth, how you can actually have it happen to you. And all of this we'll see, we don't need just a new start. We really need a new heart. And only Jesus can give it to us. Let's look at the text, verse, chapter 2, starting in verse 23. It says that now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many Jews believed in his name. If you remember back the last couple of weeks, Jesus has really started to do some big, flashy, public-facing sort of uh, events. First was the wedding at Cana. He did the miracle of turning water to wine. That was the first of the signs that he does in John's gospel that John tells us are done to reveal his glory. Then last week we saw the famous account of him cleansing the temple, turning over the money changers' tables, driving people out and declaring that this temple will be torn down, but he would rebuild it in three days, looking forward to his resurrection from the dead. At this point, Jesus has disciples. He's starting to do big public sort of acts in front of people, even miracles. And as you might expect, he starts to get a little bit of a following. It says that a number of people saw the miracles, plural, he's doing it. There's obviously some things that aren't recorded in John's gospel. And it says that they believed in him. Now, maybe you're thinking at this point, well, Jesus, this is the time to strike while the iron's hot. You've got momentum on your side. People know who you are. You're like a local celebrity. People are showing religious interest in you. This is the time to convert them into long-term disciples. But look what John says. 
He tells us in verses 24 and 25, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Then at the very end then, there in verse 25, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus isn't in need of some marketing advice. He doesn't miss some opportunity here. Jesus understands that these people don't need another celebrity to follow. They need a savior that can change their hearts. He doesn't entrust himself to them because they're not ready for it. And it wouldn't even provide what they need. Not a new start. Not a new leader to follow. They need a new heart. And that only happens through the new birth. Case in point, beginning of chapter 3, is Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a fascinating man. We're told in verse 1 that he's a a man of the Pharisees. He's a, a ruler of the Jews. That likely means that Nicodemus is a member of what was called the Sanhedrin. Uh, He was a particular type of religious Jew called Pharisee, which will become very prominent as the book goes on. They were very zealous. They kept to God's law. They they were not the sort of people you would call immoral. or They were not low lives. These were the people that were trying the hardest to live a life for God. On top of that, his credentials is that he's a, a member of the ruling body at the top of this religious hierarchy. The Sanhedrin was underneath the Romans, but had a great deal of autonomy within the area of uh, of Israel. To be on the Sanhedrin would be a bit like being a member of Congress and a Supreme Court justice wrapped up with a a professor at a local seminary. It, it, It was an extremely powerful position to be in, and you might say he's at the tip top of the ladder. That makes it all the more interesting that this man shows up to Jesus at night. Tells us in verse 2, the man came to Jesus by night. Now, it could be that John is just telling us when this meeting happened to take place. Or far more likely, John, as he was wont to do, you'll see throughout the rest of the book, very often uses light and darkness as a way to describe the spiritual state of people. You can think later on in John's gospel to the account where Judas betrays Jesus. It says, after Satan enters him, he went out and it was night. The implication is the the sky is not the only thing that's dark in that moment. So was his heart. This religious leader with all the prestige and pedigree, you can imagine he comes to Jesus, the light of the world, while he himself is walking in darkness. We also know he is a prestigious man in religious circles. In verse 10, we're told he's the teacher of Israel. That's how Jesus refers to him. That's almost assuredly a title of sorts. It would be like saying he's a professor emeritus of a seminary. He's got alphabet soup at the end of his name. He's got all the credentials you need. This is a man who knows the scriptures inside and out. But he shows up and asks Jesus a question, or a series of questions, three of them to be exact. The first is right there in verse 2. He says, it's an implied question, more of a statement. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, even the way that this 
implied question is framed reveals to us a little bit of the darkness in Nicodemus's heart. You might say the darkness is peeking out. He comes to him and he speaks to him as if there's a group of people that are speaking to Jesus. We know this about you, Jesus. We've noticed that you're a, a pretty impressive miracle worker, Jesus. Surely you must be from God. It's a bit like a lawyer friend of mine I, I know who says sometimes he gets people that come to him for legal advice that are, you know, asking for a friend. You know, I'm just a friend is wondering if, if what happens in this scenario, right? They don't want to outright ask for themselves, so they, they make it sound like it's someone else that's asking. Nicodemus comes up with the pretense of, oh, there's a group of people that are interested here, Jesus doesn't even have the guts to come to Jesus on his own terms. He's a man that's shrewd. Surely he's used to politics and working angles. He, he thinks a little bit of flattery, a little bit of pretense will get him in, in good with Jesus on the front end. And yet, as is so often the case, as we'll see in John's gospel, Jesus pushes right through all the posturing and pretense and he, he presses right to the heart. Look at his response in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And one sentence there, Jesus shatters the illusion that Nicodemus tries to present him with. And one sentence there, Jesus knocks him on his heels, doesn't even bother playing his game and goes right for the heart. He says, Nicodemus, it's not about why I'm here. That's not really what you're after. What, what you really need to know is you need a radical rebirth. Consider how jarring this would have been. Jesus speaks to him in a way people likely don't speak to a prestigious man like Nicodemus. But even more than that, Jesus insists that someone cannot even see the kingdom of God without a radical rebirth of sorts. Now, a good Pharisee in Jesus' day would have believed that virtually everyone would make it into the kingdom of God except for the worst of the worst. If you were a good Jew, you were in. And yet Jesus says to the man with alphabet soup at the end of his name, unless one is born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God. What Jesus is doing here is showing Nicodemus that his situation is so much worse than he possibly imagines. And Nicodemus assumes that he's okay, maybe he's about to make a new political ally, and yet Jesus shows him that he knows truly what's in Nicodemus in every one of our hearts today. He knows the darkness within us because Jesus knows what people are really like. When Solomon was dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8, as a, just a little aside, he mentions this. He says that of God, for you and you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. God and God alone sees us for who we are. Behind all the masks, behind all the lies, but to find all the fronts, God sees us naked and exposed. He sees us at our worst, sees us at our best. He knows not just our actions, but our motives. 
And right here in John 2 and 3, Jesus shows that he himself sees to the heart of man because he himself is God. And what he says is, our hearts are a lost cause. They don't need just a little revision. They don't need a, just a little help. They need to be reborn. Sometimes we live under the illusion that if only we could go back and make a decision again, we would make the right one this time. Maybe there's a conversation years in the past that you can think of some words you said that you wish you could have back. Maybe you made a decision to do something or not to do something that you've been trapped in a prison of regret ever since that fateful day. You think about it over and over again. And if only you could go back and do it differently. And yet, friends, I wonder if you've ever considered, even if God were to give you a chance to go back and do a do-over, would that really fix what's wrong? What if the problem's deeper? What if the problem is not just ignorance or edu education or situation? What if the problem is our heart? That's what Jesus says, which is why we need the new birth. Well, that leads to a really important question. What exactly is the new birth? And that's what we see in verses 4 through 8. The new birth, what it really is. Now, if you haven't already learned this lesson the hard way, you, you want to know what something is before you sign up for it. Um, Precious and I had the fun experience, a, a different anniversary, not this one. We went to a, uh, a really nice restaurant. And um, at this restaurant, we ordered something that we didn't know exactly what it actually was. Uh, for those of you who don't know, sweet bread is not a pastry. Um, <laughs> Sweet bread, uh, some people call it a delicacy. I, I particularly didn't uh, like it all that much, but it is the pancreas of a calf. Um, it is a, an acquired taste would be a kind way of saying it. Um, and so you want to know, especially the more important something is, you want to know what you're signing up for, right? So if Jesus is saying you must be born again, that leads to a pretty important question. What does it actually mean to be born again? Nicodemus shows in verse 4 that he gets a little bit of what Jesus is saying. And he wants to know what in the world Jesus is actually driving at. How, how is this even possible? Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? <clears throat> can he enter a womb the second time? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Now, on the surface there, it may sound as if Nicodemus is just incredibly thick-headed. As if he's saying, as if he completely misses the point Jesus is driving at. But I, I don't think that's the case. Remember, this is the, the man with alphabet soup at the end of his name, the professor emeritus. Nicodemus is a, used to working in metaphors. He's certainly used to speaking in terms of the inner person. I think instead of saying that Nicodemus misses what Jesus is saying, in fact, that Nicodemus actually extends the metaphor. So consider for a moment you're working outside in the back, backyard with a friend. It's a really hot day, and your friend says, man, whew, I am out of gas. I need a drink. And so he pops up in a drink and starts drinking some water, and you, you reply back to him, you know what? I could use a top off also, Right? See, at that moment, you're extending the metaphor. You're, you're saying the same thing he, he's saying, I also could use a drink. 
I think what Nicodemus is saying here to Jesus isn't, I don't understand what you're saying. I think what he's saying is, Jesus, I get what you're saying, and it seems impossible. Jesus, do you know how hard it is to change the human heart? Have you ever tried to to get someone to break a habit or an addiction? Or have you ever tried to get someone to turn over a new leaf? Even the small things of the heart are hard to change. You're talking about a total overhaul. Jesus, that's as impossible as someone climbing back into their mother's womb. I think Nicodemus sees fully what Jesus is saying. And he despairs. Because as one who's in charge of the spirituality of so many, he knows the human heart is a fickle thing. And changing is no easy thing. That's why Jesus responds to say what is essentially, what is impossible on our own is possible by God's power. In verse 5, he reiterates what he just said. You must be born again. But this time he adds a couple details. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are volumes that are written to explain what the water and the spirit mean there. Some think it's a reference to Christian baptism. Others think there are two different types of birth that are being talked about, one spiritual, one physical. I think the most elegant and most likely explanation comes that Jesus is alluding to the one place in the Old Testament where spirit and water are brought together. If you have your Bible, flip open with me to Ezekiel 36 and verse 25. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Here, Ezekiel, speaking to God's people while they are in exile, looks forward to a day when God is about to do something different amongst his people. He says this, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus looks back to the Old Testament, to this great prophet, and remembers this word that God promised he would one day do a special something amongst his people. Not just to deliver them from an outside force, but to save them from the inside out. To give them a new heart. He would wash them with water. He would put his spirit within them. And he would change them into something entirely new. They would obey from the inside out. What Jesus is describing here is what theologians call the doctrine of regeneration. It's how God takes a dead soul and spirit and brings it to life. It's a work God does within us. It's not something you can manufacture. It's not something you can do to yourself. No self-help program will get you there. This is God dropping a bomb of his power within us by his spirit and making us into something entirely new. Jesus says in verse 6, like gives birth to like. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to the spirit. In other words, this sort of change isn't something that we can do on our own. 
It's only one who, only the one who gives us the Spirit, God Himself, that can do this to us. In case we misunderstand what he says in verses 7 through 8, he, he tells us even though this is a change that happens inside, it's something that we can all see. He uses the example of the wind to explain it. Now, there's a little bit of a word play going on here. The, uh, the wind, the, the word for wind, both in Hebrew and Greek, is the same word that's used for spirit. It's often a, an image that uh, overlaps here. And so Jesus, after just talking about the Spirit, now goes on to talk about the effects of the Spirit as wind. And, and he says that even though you can't see the wind itself, you can see what the wind does. You can see its effects. Now, maybe your neighbors are not particularly great at picking up their leaves. You may not see the wind, but you can see when the wind blows all your, their leaves into your yard, right? You can see the wind rustling the trees. You can feel the wind on your face. You're not seeing the actual molecules of air. It's transparent. But you know the wind is there because you can see and feel its effect. Jesus' point is that the new birth is a, a radical work of God within us to change us from the inside out. And when it happens, friends, you will see it. You'll see lives transformed. You'll see people that had no interest in God suddenly want to spend their whole life pursuing him. I remember getting to watch this happen to two college students. They came to Christ while they were away from home at, at university, and it came time for them to go back home. And when they went back home, the people there didn't know all the things that occurred but they could tell something was different. They weren't joining in the partying the way they used to. They weren't anxious the way they used to be. There was a peace and a joy about them. Don't you know this to be true, friends? When you see the work of the Spirit of God in someone's heart, you may not see their heart truly, but you can see the effect on their heart. You can see the action of the Spirit blowing through someone's life. Jesus answers Nicodemus, how is it possible? And he tells him, only by the power of God, by his spirit working within each of us. Now that leads to a really, really important question. If we need the new birth, and if the new birth is only something that God can give to us, his power within us, how is it that we actually receive it? How, or another way you could say it, how can it actually happen to us? Well, that's where he takes us to in verses 9 through 15. How do you actually have the new birth happen to you? By looking up with eyes of faith to Jesus. Nicodemus' responses have been getting progressively shorter. First, it was a long block, a long sentence, then two shorter ones. And now in verse 9, it is just a, a tiny question. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? What he's probably getting at is, Jesus, how does this actually happen? It seems impossible. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll humor you. How does it actually happen? And this is what Jesus tells him. He says, first, Nicodemus, you have to know how you got off track. And then I'll show you the way to the new birth. First, he rebukes him. He tells him how it is he got off track. It says it there in verse 10. 
Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? All the alphabet soup at the end of your names done you no good. You didn't get this. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Jesus says, the problem, Nicodemus, is you tried to come to me on your own terms. You tried to stand off as if you were the judge of my testimony. You tried to act as if you were some impartial observer. When in fact, to hear the testimony of Jesus and to do anything but it, with it except to receive it humbly with faith is the greatest of all arrogance and pride. Nicodemus responded as one who thought he could judge Jesus, not realizing that Jesus is the one who would judge him. If you can't receive the words of Jesus with faith, you will never experience the new birth. It's impossible. The way to the new birth only comes by hearing the testimony of who Jesus is. God himself come to rescue us in this world and receiving him with an empty hand of faith. Jesus then goes on to say, okay, Nicodemus, you may have gotten on track, but here's the way forward. And, and as he answers this for Nicodemus, we can find the way to the new birth ourselves. It says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, we don't have time to read the whole story together, but if you have time this afternoon, I encourage you to read Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Because as Jesus shows Nicodemus the way to the new birth, he assumes knowledge of this story. This is back when Moses and the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness. They've just been delivered by God. He gave them a great victory over their enemies. And as is their pattern again and again, God saves and they forget and they grumble and then they are judged. This time the judgment comes in the form of venomous snakes. They're described as fiery serpents. It's probably referring to the painful and deadly bite that they inflict. The people, we are told, are dying off in droves. There's so many of these snakes, they're biting people left and right, and there doesn't seem to be any hope. And as they do over and over again, the people realize their error, and they ask Moses, please pray for us. And Moses prays, and God gives him the way to save them. He tells them, Moses, make for yourself like a little model, a little crafted ser uh, serpent, a little crafted snake, and put it up on a pole. Hold it up in front of everyone and tell people, look at the snake and you will not die from the venom. Now that probably sounded like a pretty ridiculous thing to do. I don't know about you, if I'm bit by a snake, I think I need anti-venom. I think I need a tourniquet. I don't think I need to look at some model hanging up on a pole. And yet what God was asking for was for them to look with a gaze of faith. To look at the provision God provided and to find that God would save them yet again. As the story goes, the people look up, and any of them who look upon the snake, doubts or not, they look upon it, and the venom does not kill them. They recover. 
Jesus takes this narrative and he applies it to himself. He says, just like the snake that was lifted up, the son of man, Jesus' favorite designation for himself, the son of man must be lifted up so that all who look at him would find eternal life. You see, what Jesus is saying is the way to the new birth is to see Jesus with eyes of faith lifted up and consider what it means that Jesus was lifted up. He was lifted up twice. Once he was lifted up on a cruel Roman cross to die as a criminal, the innocent giving his life for the guilty. As he hung up, as he was lifted up, he took the venom of our sin upon himself. As the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was lifted up to be our sin bearer, to pay the penalty for sinners like us. But that wasn't the only time he was lifted up. He was lifted up a second time. After he was buried, three days later, he was lifted from the grave. And, and then he was ultimately lifted up into heaven itself to sit on the throne above all thrones as the ruler of the world that will one day come back to judge all the kings and princes in their power. This Jesus tells us the way to the new birth is to look on the Son of Man, to look on Jesus with the gaze of faith to believe that he is the way to be saved from the wrath of God. And then and only then, you won't just have a new start. God will give you a new heart. Friend, maybe this morning, you are sensing that there's something wrong in your life. Maybe you've been trapped in a prison of grief and regret for so long, you can't remember a time when you weren't in it. Maybe you've been trying all sorts of things that haven't been working. Promising to do better. Trying to stoke your self-esteem. Trying to distract yourself with busyness and career advancement. And yet deep down you know there's something broken that you can't fix. Friend, don't ignore it. This is God graciously showing you. Yes, you need a, a new start. But you need so much more than that. You need a new heart. And the only way you'll find it is when you put your trust in Jesus. If you believe he is the only way out of the venom of your sins in your heart. If you trust that he's all that God needs to save you from your sins. And you throw yourself at his mercy. Friend, if you do that, you will find something amazing happen. You will find that you will be reborn. All the joy and peace that a person could all, ever want and more. It's available to you today if you'll just look on Jesus with faith. For us as a church, this passage shows us that we need to take seriously the, the miracle of the new birth and how it is that someone really becomes a Christian. Sometimes we can get so caught up in evangelistic strategies and thinking through the best way to reach people that it almost feels like we can manufacture new life. Friend, we need to remember that the only way anyone ever gets saved is when God does a work by his spirit within them. We can't manufacture it, but friend, we can see the effect of it when it happens. We can watch the wind blow through their life and change them. 
If you're here this morning and you're not sure if that new life has happened to you, you're not sure if you've had this new birth, it's one of the reasons why as our church membership process goes forward, uh, as we saw these people uh, this morning that entered into church membership, it's one of the reasons we do elder interviews. That's an opportunity for a pastor or an elder to hear your testimony of faith, to consider what we know of your life and your intentions, and to be able to tell you, friend, we think we see the Spirit of God blowing through your heart. We think we see evidence of the new birth. Regardless of how, where we find ourselves this morning, if the new birth is truly the greatest need that any human has, if what we need is not just a new start but a new heart, it certainly should make us zealous to bring people to Jesus. We need to recognize we can't produce the new birth, but we can point people to the one who can. We can point their gaze upward. We can help them to see the direction to look with the eyes of faith. And maybe, just maybe, God would grant us the great blessing of watching, watching someone born again right in front of us. There was a man, often called St. Augustine, August, Augustine of Hippo. He was a man who knew that there was something wrong in his life. His mother had been praying for him, she knew that he was not a godly man and prayed again and again that God might save him. He decided to try different ways to fix what was broken within him. First, he tried just living for his sensuality. He did anything that felt good and pretty quickly found that that was empty. Then he tried religion. He, he got involved with a sect and lived a rigorous religious life and pretty soon realized that didn't work. Finally, he despaired. He thought there was no solution to his broken heart. Until one day, he was walking through the woods, and he heard some children singing a song he'd never heard before. It said, open it and read. Open it and read. He knew that God was speaking to him and telling him to open the scriptures. Augustine opened up the scriptures and found a verse that rebuked the very life that he had been living and said that instead he is supposed to live as a new creation in Jesus. This is what he says about that moment. He said, I wanted to read no for further, nor did I need to, for instantly as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. In that moment, he was born again. And he goes down in history as one of the greatest theologians the church has ever been given. Brothers and sisters, we need Jesus. We need the new birth. Not just a new start, but a new heart. And that's something only he can give us. But the good news is if we have looked on him with eyes of faith, then he is all we need. And the Spirit of God will blow through our lives for all to see. Let's pray.